Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back. I am Diana Kander, excited that you are here to join me for a very special installment of Professional AF. For those new to the program, about a year ago, I made a list of 49 different things that I wanted to improve about myself to help get to the next level of my professional career. And each week I talk to an expert about one of the items on the list and then frequently find out that I have been thinking about it all wrong. And this week is no different. One of the items on my list was learning how to reduce stress better. And wow, did I talk to a woman that completely rocked my world and completely changed how I thought about stress. Like I'm done trying to reduce it. And just generally my entire relationship with stress. My guest this week is Kelly McGonigal. Kelly is a health psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University who specializes in understanding the mind-body connection. She's the best-selling author of The Upside of Stress, the book that we discuss in part one of the show. Her TED Talk on the topic, How to Make Stress Your Friend, is one of the most viewed TED Talks of all time with over 20 million views. And I can't stress enough how much her perspective, her research, have altered my relationship with stress. See what I did there? Mm -hmm. It's good. In part two of the show, we discuss Kelly's brand new book, The Joy of Movement, which explores why physical exercise is a powerful antidote to depression, anxiety, and loneliness. Kelly tackles some of the biggest myths about exercise and shares some very interesting research to explain exactly what movement and exercise does to us and how to harness its effects. Before we get into the program, I just want to thank you for being here and kindly ask that you make sure that you're subscribed to the show. And if you haven't yet, please leave a rating or review for the program. I'd love to hear who your favorite guests have been and the number one takeaway that you've gotten from the show. This kind of feedback is so valuable and it helps me bring you more amazing content like this two-part conversation with Kelly McGonigal. Kelly, welcome to the show. Excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. Okay, you have a very provocative book that argues that stress is actually good for us. And I want to get into the argument in a second. But first, I just want to know, how did you make this discovery? What happened? Yeah. And so first of all, I'd say it's not so much an argument as it is an active choice that we can choose to take, an active perspective we can take to help us be better at stress. Um, because the truth is, if you look at the scientific research, um, there's a lot of not so great things about stress and also a lot of evidence that stress can bring out what's good in us. And I'm a health psychologist, so I was trained to view stress as the enemy of all things good, that it will destroy your health, your relationships, your happiness, um, prevent you from becoming the best version of yourself. And I spent a lot of time teaching people that. And um, about a decade ago, I started to come across some research suggesting that how you think about stress can actually play a bigger role on your health and your happiness and your success than whether or not life is stressful. And then in fact, most of us aren't actively choosing whether or not our lives are stressful. Um, but that 
when we choose to view stress as something that is not always a sign that we are inadequate to the challenges of our lives. It is not always a toxic state that we immediately need to escape by calming down or getting drunk or quitting our stressful job or leaving a stressful relationship. That instead, when we view stress as something that can help us um, reflect on what we care about, that it can give us energy, that it can help us tap into our courage and encourage us to reach out to others and get help. When we view stress as something that simply it's what arises in your brain and your body when something that you care about is at stake. We can use it as a signal. We can use it as a resource, as fuel, and we can tap into our human instincts to actually deal with the stresses in our lives rather than look for ways to escape them. So the, you know, the way that I came to this perspective really was through the research. And I didn't immediately flip my mindset because you know, we have all been conditioned to believe that if your life is stressful, you're doomed. And the only way to be healthy and happy is to avoid or reduce stress. Uh, one of the, the most provocative studies that made me rethink stress actually found that um, having a very stressful life only increased your risk of mortality over the next decade if at the very same time you also believed that your stress was harmful for your health. And having you know, just as much stress in your life but not viewing stress as inherently harmful, um, those folks were actually the most likely to be alive at the end of the decade. And that's some pretty hard outcomes, right? We're not just talking like, how do you feel, but are you still alive? Um, so a number of studies like that forced me to grapple with what I'd always believed was true about stress. And more importantly, like if my, if my goal is to help people thrive, um, to consider that, that choosing this different perspective on stress can actually empower us to be better at stress. And I think it's actually important because if you want to make it an argument, I mean, you could just stack up scientific study on both sides and you could, you could make an argument, you could make a convincing argument that stress is bad for you, but making that argument actually keeps us from being the best version of ourselves under stress. It's not like we're asking people, please go out and suffer because it's good for you. But if the reality of your life is that it is stressful, um, to know that you can actually trust yourself. And there are, there are these natural capacities we have to become resilient, to learn and grow, to connect with others so we don't have to face the stress alone. And that's really what this, this point of view is about. Well, I found myself arguing with the book for roughly the first 50 pages, as you had mm -hmm. predicted, because in the book, you say that people with anxiety are the ones that have the most negative view of stress. They are the least likely to believe this research <laughs> and they are yeah. the most likely to be helped by uh, your research and how to change your opinion about stress. So I definitely like check. It's so funny. I write about that in the book that I actually was doing research at the Stanford Psychophysiology Laboratory. We were studying the effect of anxiety on, on the body. And the research was consistently showing that people who had extreme levels of anxiety, they believed that their physical stress response was um, was insanely overreactive and that that physical stress response was keeping them from performing well and that it was dangerous. And yet when you actually looked at things like heart rate and blood pressure and breathing, they looked exactly like the people who did not report extreme levels of anxiety, that they were having the, the same physical stress response, but they were interpreting it in a different way. 
I thought that was so, and so the reason I'm mentioning this is I didn't believe it because I'm someone who has struggled with anxiety my whole life. And I remember looking at, literally looking at the physiological data files and talking to the other researchers. And I was like, that's BS. I guess we didn't get people who were really anxious because there's no way that my anxiety could be healthy or, or not harmful. Like they just didn't get anxious enough people in the study. And there's all sorts of, you know, people who have stressful lives um, it's not like stress is always fun. And so often the people who, who actually might benefit the most from this perspective is the one who are, are people who've had a lot of adversity in their past or in their present, who are dealing with major challenges. Um, and at the very same time are most likely to, to want to, you know, stake a claim and say, this can't be good for me because it sucks and it's hard and, um, it's exhausting. And yet at the very same time, the research is super clear that the perspective that, that you have some agency in choosing how you respond to stress and that stress can be a catalyst for bringing out the strengths that you value in yourself, that perspective is most useful for people who are dealing with the most difficult stress. So for the last year, I kind of shared with you the journey that my husband and I have been on uh, ever since we, we learned of these mental health issues that we've been dealing with, I have been in a total mode of reducing the amount of stress in life, both by, you know, saying no to all the things that we could, but I, you know, have started a practice of meditation. I, um, I got this bracelet with essential oils to keep me calm. And maybe that's not like keeping stress out of my life is not the best method. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Well, actually, so you mentioned three coping strategies right there. And I think you could really think about them as being quite, um, quite different in terms of their approach. So first of all, meditation is a fabulous practice for developing resilience. And even though it's marketed as stress reduction, this is actually, um, the main area of my own scientific research over the, the past decade has been looking at how meditation practices can make us better at stress um, it's not about calming down. It's about learning how to deal with really difficult things that are happening in your mind and your body that you can't control. And how do you develop the kind of reserve to be with yourself, even when it's uncomfortable and choose the focus of your attention. So meditation, I actually think once you stop hoping that it's going to be the miracle that gets rid of your stress, it's actually a wonderful resource. Um, essential oils, who knows, you know, maybe it's, I think a lot of these things are, can be acts of, um, self-care saying, I'm going to choose to acknowledge the stress right now and take a moment to do something to support myself. But that essential oil is not going to be the thing that gives you, you know, actual tangible support that you need. It's not going to be the thing that helps you remember what you care about most. It may be something that you choose on, on route to a more active coping strategy that allows you to think about what your options are and, and what you need to choose in this moment to support yourself and what you care about. And then in terms of saying no to things, right? I mean, of course, saying no to things that are simply a burden and have no connection to meaning in your life, that seems like a reasonable coping strategy. But what we know is that when people believe that stress is bad for them, they often avoid roles and relationships and activities that are the really good kind of stress, the kind that over time allow you to grow, that put you uh, around other people in relationships that ultimately become supportive, even if there's also some conflict or some challenges related to that. And avoidance as a coping strategy is actually one of the biggest predictors of negative stress-related outcomes, including divorce and losing your job and depression. 
And so of those three coping strategies that you mentioned, like they really reflect different ways of, of grappling with stress. And to the degree that any coping strategy is about trying to check out of your life and, and the, sort of the underlying belief is this is too much and I can't handle this. So I need to turn my attention away from life itself towards trying to sort of fix what I'm feeling. Um, those tend to be the coping strategies that exacerbate the negative effects of stress. Every time I feel like I have a handle on this thing, it's like parenting. Every time I feel like I have the hang of it, somebody like you comes along. It's like, nope, everything you thought is the opposite. We're changing everything on you now. Uh, yeah, so I agree with that. And I, I think one of the, the things that I, th I think is most empowering about this perspective is it's ultimately futile to try to live a stress-free life. And I really do believe there's some kind of like stress reduction industry that is just making money off of a fantasy we have that there's a version of our lives where we never experience anxiety or sadness or loss or anger. And also parenting is just as meaningful as we want it to be. And that's never stressful. Our relationships are fabulous and full of joy and love and never stressful. And we have meaningful jobs where we're learning and growing and contributing. And that's never stressful. There's like, if we could just get it together, like if we could just get the right essential oil and learn the right meditation technique, <laughs> we, if we could just do our lives right, then our lives would be perfect. And the, when you look at the research, so one of the stats I often share with people is uh, this fabulous study that was done in the US of teenagers to people as late in life as you can be alive and found that um, meaning in life was positively correlated with stress every way they measured it, from how much adversity you've had in your past to how stressful you find the demands of everyday life to even how many minutes a day you spend worrying. All of those were positively correlated to meaning in life. And I think that part of this perspective is also saying that if I choose a meaningful life, I have to abandon this, this fantasy that we may have been sold or, or are holding on to that I'll get to a point where I have all the meaning and none of the stress. And what it requires is somehow just fixing something inside of me that is keeping me from that stress-free life. So one of the key ways that you said people shift their perspective on stress, because you've made the case, I, I feel like I'm ready to do this. And the, and the vehicle that you use to, to shift people's beliefs is something that you call mindset interventions. Can you explain the topic? Because I, I was the most fascinated in the book uh, about this topic and how it works. So can you explain it to us? Yeah. So this is uh, the interesting body of research that there are certain beliefs we hold that influence how we react to life in really important ways. And how you think about stress is one of those beliefs. Other beliefs that really seem to matter, by the way, include, do you believe that other people are basically trustworthy or essentially untrustworthy, sort of like what's your, your default um, belief about other human beings. Another belief that seems to be really important is, do you believe people can change? And another one is, do you think aging is fundamentally about falling apart and having all good things destroyed? Or do you think that aging has some positive aspects to it? So there are a number of beliefs like that, that seem to constantly interact with ordinary everyday life experiences to alter our mood, our emotions, what's happening in our bodies, including you know uh, how healthy our responses, our physical responses are moment to moment, uh, what's happening in our brains, um, how we choose to show up in our lives, how we think about other people, how other people view us. And um, studies show that if you can go in and uh, refine these beliefs to move them a little bit in the direction of the belief that seems to predict having 
healthier emotions, uh, healthier stress responses, healthier responses in your brain and in your body, more strategic coping responses, better relationships with others, uh, all that sort of thing. If you can get people in the direction of the belief that seems to be associated with those things, you can actually enhance people's health and happiness and relationships. And mindset interventions aren't that complicated. Like you don't need to go into therapy for 20 years to convince someone that stress is energy that you can harness or that stress can be a reminder to connect with others rather than uh, stress being sort of just an inner state that's toxic. And the best way to deal with it is to try to numb it or escape it. Um, You simply introduce some ideas to people with maybe a little bit of research like I try to do in the book. You know, for example, the research showing that stress often creates a biochemical state that makes us want to connect with others. Sometimes we experience it as loneliness. Sometimes we experience it as wanting a hug. Sometimes we experience it as a a need to go out and and give back or be a part of something bigger than ourselves. To recognize that that's actually part of your, your brain's default response to stress and it's trying to help you. It's trying to make sure that you aren't dealing with the stress alone by yourself, that you get the resources that are available to you. There are all these things that we can share that are true and that are consistent with the belief that seems to help people engage with life more skillfully and with more joy and with greater health. And so some of these mindset interventions, they literally take like five minutes and then you follow people down the road a month later, a year later. And they are living their best life in a, in a healthier, happier way, even if they don't remember what the mindset intervention was. One of my favorite studies was done at Stanford where they gave people the message um, that everyone feels like they don't belong when they show up at college, that that's a really common experience and it doesn't mean that you don't belong. It was a super short intervention. Four years later, it had a major effect on GPA and psychological well-being and physical health. And people did not even remember that they had participated in the study. And yet somehow that mindset had changed their willingness to connect with strangers, to ask for help from professors, to reinterpret what it meant when they had a failure. And so a lot of what this book is trying to do, The Upside of Stress, is give people different mindset interventions that have been demonstrated to help people deal better with stress. Even if you finish the book and you're like, I, don't, I know I read that book about stress and I don't, I don't really remember what was in it. Um, if the evidence is right, it should still be helping you deal with stress uh, years down the line. People think that we just talk about whoop maybe during ads. They don't understand that we talk about the whoop all the time. Everywhere we go. Before you talk about how much you talk about it, let me just say for those people who are new to whoop, it is a fitness tracker that provides personalized daily insights into how much sleep you're getting, how much strain you're putting on your body, and how much recovery your body has had. We have this couple uh, that we vacation with. They're some, some of our best friends, Sam and Julie, and we just went on vacation with them. We just got back. They were with us for four days, and at the end of it, they just gave up and both signed up for whoops. Halfway through, they, they both half, ordered. Halfway through, yeah, because it's like what we talk about all the time. And I'm most excited that the professional AF whoop group is active and going strong and so far people are signing up if you'd like to join the group and have a team of people who track your sleep your recovery and your strain it's super fun to see what everybody's got going on you can like compare yourself to other people there's a leaderboard for each category it's pretty exciting Jesse's, of course, leading the sleep category with nine and a half hours of sleep i should probably join this thing it'd be fun yeah Okay, well. All right. And 
just like our friends Sam and Julie, you can get a 15% discount on ordering your Whoop. They've provided this offer to our listeners. 15% off your purchase with the code Diana. You just go to whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com and use the code Diana at checkout to save 15% and optimize the way you live. So recently we had a loved one in the hospital. Um, Things are much better now. Thank you for asking. And Diana came up. uh, I had been in the waiting room for like hours and uh, and Diana showed up and she had in one pocket uh, a protein bar for me because I had not eaten. And in the other pocket, uh, a super shot immunity blend, uh, which was like perfect. And it was very cute and also very helpful. If you love someone who's in the hospital give them the immunity blend. No, we're talking about Balance of Superfood Shot, which provides half of your daily fruit and vegetable servings. 90% of Americans do not eat the daily recommended servings of fruits and vegetables. All of the shots are organic, non-GMO, vegan, and free from the eight major allergens. It's a shot, and there are three different flavors. The Foundation Blend, which is green and delicious. The Immunity Blend, which is the one I... I brought to Jason purple and delicious and the turmeric blend, which is anti-inflammatory. It's orange and delicious. I will tell you every time I drink one, they taste better and better. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. They were pretty good to start with. (laughs) You go to superfoodshot.co. That's superfoodshot.co and use the code Diana at checkout for 30% off. That's superfoodshot.co. And use the code Diana at checkout for 30% off. You had this great study about cleaning women and doing a uh, mindset intervention. Can you share that story? It was awesome. Yeah. So that is work by um, Professor Ali Crum when she was at Yale. She's actually now at Stanford. And she found that um, people who were doing a lot of physical labor, the kind of movement that should be good for your heart health, good good for your muscles, uh, cleaning rooms, that they didn't think what they were doing was exercise. They interpreted it as only being a toll on their bodies, the kind of thing that is harmful and exhausting. And so she created this little mindset intervention that educated people who clean for a living that what they're doing counts as exercise. They are using their bodies in the the very ways that all of the health organizations tell you that you should do to improve your health. And after that intervention, um, the people who received that messaging actually had their health improved in ways that are consistent with exercising more, except they weren't exercising more. They were doing the same amount of exercise they'd always been doing. And yet somehow their health started to improve in the direction that is consistent with the exercise that they were doing as part of their job. Now, a lot of Ali Crumb studies, I find they're like right on that threshold of plausibility where I, I can't explain to you how that happened. Some of her studies, she has some, some theories about it. Um, but I think the, the reason that her studies catch people's attention is because they make you be like, now that, that can't be right. And yet she's demonstrated in a number of domains that the way she explains it is the effect that you expect is the effect that you get. And the the implications for stress is if the effect that you expect from stress is it will exhaust you, it will make you sick, it will make you depressed, it will make you perform worse if you're feeling anxiety, um, it will make you the worst version of yourself so you're a, a less patient parent, 
if, if the effect you expect stress and stressful experiences to have on you is completely harmful, it's more likely to be. And then that's been demonstrated in a number of ways. And if the effect you expect is, okay, I might not like the way stress feels right now, but I also know that my heart pounding is a sign that I have energy available to me right now. You are more likely to actually have a healthier stress response and more likely to rise to the challenge and more likely to perform better at whatever the, the stressful task is. If you believe that stress, even if it, it makes you um, feel bad in the moment, that part of that feeling bad is about nudging you to do things and make choices that get you closer to what you care about or who you care about. You're more likely to cope in that way that actually strengthens your relationships or gets you closer to your goal. And so a big part of, of um, stress mindset resets are about understanding the variety of effects that stress can produce. Some are good, some are bad. And to, to put your attention on the effects that you want, almost as a kind of empowering placebo effect, in which you know placebo effects are real and they're useful. It's not, it's not a joke or a trick. Uh, in many ways, when you tell your body and brain what you expect them to do, they're like, oh, okay, I know how to do that. You're telling me that you want to produce uh, courage in a moment of fear. Yeah, that's part of my, my repertoire. Okay, I guess we're doing that. Let me produce a little bit more dopamine in the reward system to motivate you. Let me, um, let me give you a little bit more of that energy, that adrenaline. Let me activate the areas of the brain that remind you of your values and what you care about. And the, the, uh, the long sort of outcome of that is a state of courage. Well, let's dive into that a little bit deeper, because one of the things that I've learned in therapy is that my body is quick to jump into fight or flight response. So yeah. I, in my brain, have been equating any kind of stress with that fight or flight mode. And what I learned from your book is that there's actually other kinds of stress, just like you're describing. So can you explain the different kinds of stress that we can get into and how we can make that decision of which one we're going to choose? Yes. Yeah, so most people, like I was educated in both medicine and psychology to use fight or flight as a, a shorthand for what happens in your brain and body in moments of stress. And I bet many people listening to this have heard that, that the idea that when you experience stress, your body and brain only has one response and it has it, whether you're worried about your kid or whether you're stuck in a traffic jam or whether you, you hear bad news on the, the internet, that whatever it is, you're going to have the same response and it's, it's sort of evolutionarily ancient response we had when we were fleeing predators that wanted to eat us. Your heart rate increases, your blood pressure soars, there's inflammation throughout your body because your brain is anticipating that you might lose a limb and it's trying to reduce blood loss if you're injured. And we, we hear this, that like, that's it. You're going to flee, you're going to fight. It's going to make you the most aggressive or, or terrified version of yourself. At some point, they started throwing in freeze and recognizing some people become paralyzed under stress. And then researchers started realizing, well, actually, there's a whole lot of other things that can happen under stress. Um, and then uh, a couple decades ago, people realized, well, actually, not only are there subtle variations on this whole fight, flight, or freeze thing, but human beings are really complex. And we have multiple response patterns that can be triggered by stress um, that often don't look anything like fight or flight. Uh, one of them is sometimes referred to as tend and befriend. I refer to it now as a, a bigger than self stress response or a social stress response, which is that sometimes under stress, instead of having a fight or flight response, your body and brain shift into a state 
through changes in brain chemistry, changes in the hormones that flood your body that make you want to be around other people, that give you greater hope and greater courage, that make you more interested in helping others, and that make you better increase your emotional intelligence so you're better able to take other people's perspectives, you're better able to you know, read other people's emotions, and it just makes you a, a, a more skillfully social version of yourself so you don't have to face stress alone. And, uh, you know, from a physiological point of view, it does not look a whole lot like fight or flight other than, um, that your heart rate often increases. That's sort of uh, a common theme for all stress responses and is not necessarily unhealthy by the way. Um, but it's also a, like a healthy state. So when you're in a tend and befriend response and you've got hormones like oxytocin flowing around and, you know, increased dopamine in your reward system, um, it's actually really good for your heart. It's good for your immune system. And it does tend to fill us with a kind of uh, a courage and hope. We also know that you can have a challenge response to stress that looks a lot like a flow state. And in fact, if you were to look at people who are in a flow state and look at their hormones, what you'll see is an increase in certain stress hormones. A flow state is a stress state, but it's a, a slightly different ratio of stress hormones and a slightly different perspective that says, this is hard and it's important and I care about it but I can handle this. I have the resources to deal with this. And so the stress response you have is basically about harnessing your attention and giving you access to all of your mental resources and your physical resources, your literal strength and your psychological strength so that you can do that uh, important task and do it well. And it's still a stress response. And it, again, it's healthier than fight or flight. It's like you being your best self in a moment of pressure. One of the underlying themes of what stress response you have is your mindset and your beliefs. So one of the reasons that a lot of people listening to this will be like, okay, but I still freeze under stress all the time. I become paralyzed. I, I feel like I can't move. I can't think. I can't act. Um, and what we know now is that we, all, we often have these, these kind of stress habits that are rooted in our beliefs about ourselves and our, our beliefs about others and our beliefs about the world. And it's not like you couldn't have a courageous response under stress, but you've had some experiences in life that have taught you to freeze. And this is workable. And one of the most effective ways of working with tendencies to respond to all stress in one way that's not particularly skillful or helpful is to start working with our beliefs about stress and our beliefs about ourselves and others in a way that gives us access to our full repertoire of stress responses. One of the examples that you've given that most resonated with me is that on speaking or performing in front of others, which I do uh, professionally, but I have, you know, a big physical stress response to it. And my instinct has been to try to calm down and reduce the stress so it doesn't damage my performance. Because if I'm stressed, then I won't be able to remember what I'm trying to say or I won't be, um, I don't know, as convincing on stage. And you actually, like blew my mind in saying that instead you should think I'm going to go with the challenge stress response and be grateful for everything that my body is doing to prepare me for performing exceptionally for the speech. And I am excited to do this. And gosh, that's been such a game changer. I know people are surprised that I, so I often, I also do a lot of speaking professionally and sometimes people who are, you know, like my handlers at events, they look at what I do before a talk. And I, first of all, I'm, I will listen to really energizing music. I will dance if I'm able to, to try to get a stress response going. 
I will purposely think about why it matters to try to like kick in my good stress response. Like this is a moment that matters. I care about this. And I also will try to connect with people in the audience or people who are helping to organize the event to also get into that, uh, that stress response that is about being open to others and connecting to others. I'm not never trying to calm down, breathing deep, whatever. It's, it's all about trusting yourself to harness the energy that stress gives you. And there's so much research on this, that this mindset helps every type of sort of high pressure situation that athletes compete and perform better when they choose to accept their anxiety and, and, and harness it. I actually spoke with an Olympic athlete who ended up um, meddling at her event because she chose to reframe her anxiety as energy. At least she said that that, that is what the, uh, the cause was of her being able to meddle. Um, that it helps people who are negotiating their salary to, if they actually walk into the negotiation saying, okay, this is a nerve wracking experience, but I'm going to trust that my anxiety is energy that's going to help me in this negotiation. They walk out with higher salaries. Um, it helps singers sing more on pitch. It, it, it helps students score better on exams. This is a, actually a mindset reset I really trust. And I would encourage anyone who's listening, if you experience stress related to performance, where it's a moment that matters and you want to do well, this is really a mindset that works to say, I don't have to calm down. Even something I experience as anxiety can be fuel and to stop worrying that your anxiety means you're going to choke or blow it and start focusing on what you care about and, and just harness it and trust yourself. You know, it's funny. The very first episode of this podcast is me working on my pre-speaking nerves. And what I learned was to harness the power of drag queens. And so before every speech, I now do something called draggercising. And I didn't know exactly why it was great, but now I understand that it was generating a stress response for my body to put me in the right kind of stress. And I thank you for that uh, scientific explanation of what's happening. Yeah. And, you know, there's even a version of this that works. You know, I think a performance stress is sort of ordinary stress. It can feel debilitating in the moment. But it's qualitatively different than, say, something like trauma or loss. But there is even a version of this that has been shown to help people deal with the much more difficult stress of trauma or loss, which is this idea that you can believe that in the long term, this experience is going to allow you to make choices or to grow in ways that you personally value, that, um, that even experiences you would never have chosen for yourself can ultimately activate your natural tendency to want to make meaning, to want to grow and learn and change. And that that's built into our biology. It's built into what it means to be human, to be able to transform suffering into meaning and growth and something, uh, a, a contribution to the world. And that is a sort of a, it's like the next level version of this mindset reset to trust your pounding heart in a moment when you're anxious but to trust that that's actually part of a, a, a bigger capacity that humans have in, in moments that are difficult to actually tap into strengths that, that ultimately allow us to, to, um, to be a version of ourselves that we value. Well, my, my last question is a lot of people listening to the show have professional careers and I feel like the workplace is more stressful than it's ever been. Do you have any advice of how to do um, a mindset shift at work when somebody feels, you know, stressed out by everything that's going on and they maybe don't have as much control as they do over their personal lives. 
Yeah. I mean, I think, so the first thing to do is to recognize stress as a signal and you don't actually know what the message is until you're willing to pay attention. So sometimes stress at work is just about like, you're really, you're learning and you're growing and you're being pushed to perform. And that's a healthy stress. And the appropriate mindset reset is going to be to trust yourself and rise to the challenge and put in the the time and the work and let yourself enjoy the meaning of it. And, and that might be the appropriate response. Sometimes the stress is a signal that something really inappropriate is going on. Maybe there's something unethical happening at work. Maybe um, someone is treating you in a way that is illegal or inappropriate. And the stress you're feeling is not, all right, just suck it up and deal with it. Rise to the challenge. The, the stress is a signal that says you need to bring this into the open and it's going to be hard and difficult, but it's important. And this is something you can do. Sometimes the stress is a signal that you need to leave the workplace and go pursue another dream. And I put these sort of three extremely different um, sort of signals on the table because I think the mindset reset that I encourage first and foremost is to not assume that there's sort of an ideal level of stress and your job is to try to figure out ways to tune the signal to like the appropriate level. So calm down, you know, take a break or, you know, whatever, meditate when you're too stressed and then if it's like just the right amount of stress, go with it. It really is about asking yourself, what do I care about? And why is this a moment that matters if I'm feeling the stress? And what can I choose in this moment that really reflects what my core values are and what my goals are? And sometimes it's going to be about you know putting your head down and getting the work done. Sometimes it's going to be about asking people for help. Sometimes it's going to be about embracing the stress of deciding it's time to reinvent yourself and your career and take a leap. And I think that's the most important mindset reset is to start to think about stress as a signal. And if you're feeling a lot of stress and you you ask yourself, what do I care about and why does this matter? And the answer is, I don't think it it does matter. Sometimes what we actually learn is that we're, we're used to having a stress response in moments just because sort of everyone else is stressed out around us, or we're just sort of used to, you know, overreacting in moments. And sometimes, you know, if, if you ask yourself, why does it matter? And the answer is, gee, it doesn't really matter. And this can take, we can do this tomorrow. The, this urgency is sort of artificial. And sometimes what you learn is that um, you can actually walk away from allowing stress to be like the guiding, the guiding principle of everything that you do. But again, like I said, this is really about curiosity and there's no single mindset reset that's going to make people love their job and, and, uh, you know, be the best possible version of themselves at their job. It's about viewing stress, not as a, the problem itself you need to solve, but as a, the question. That is the end of part one of the interview. As you'll see in part two, there was a pretty clear division in our conversation, and I just wanted you to have easy access between the two sections. So if you want to understand exactly how exercise and movement fight anxiety, depression, loneliness, just head to the next installment, part two with Kelly McGonigal. 